Welcome to Coffee and Change, a podcast where we talk about change in our lives, our work, and our world, and how we're managing it. Welcome back. This week, I thought I would release a bonus episode, as we are just over one week from the presidential election here in the United States. I welcome back Kevin Walling, who is a former podcast guest, who talked with me about a year ago about candidacy, campaigns, and elections in a digital era. This week, we talk about the week ahead and the election that is likely to bring the most amount of change this country has ever seen. Enjoy the discussion. Well, welcome back, Kevin. It has been over a year since you were last on the podcast. I think we connected in September of 2019, believe it or not. Wow, it's hard to believe it's been a year. Yeah. Um, not much has changed. No, just just a smidge, right? Um, just a pandemic, just probably the most uh, historic election we'll ever face uh, in our exactly. lifetime. Um, yeah, but last time we connected in September of 2019, um, you and I chatted a lot about candidacy and campaigning and the election. And here we are a little over a week out. I think it's a week tomorrow is election day. Um, so I would love to just kind of pick up where we left off, considering how much has changed between September 2019 and today. Um, how are you doing? What are you working on? And what does your week look like for the next week? Yeah. So, uh, number one, it's great to be back with you. Uh, you know, it's all, uh, all pedal to the metal now, uh, just about a week out from the election firing on all cylinders, uh, my day job, as we talked about uh, last time, uh, is I make TV ads and digital ads for folks running for office, um, for um, big uh, ballot campaigns. We're doing a lot of work on the IE side in support of Democrats up and down the ballots. So there's a lot of key races. Uh, my firm is also working on the number one Democratic uh, incumbent for tech, which is a, a woman named Kendra Horn uh, in Oklahoma's fifth uh, congressional district. She uh, had an upset victory in 2018 in that wave election for Democrats. Um, and now she is facing her first reelection and she's the number one target uh, for Republicans in Oklahoma. Um, so it's very busy in terms of the day job and uh, making sure that we're not just protecting uh, folks in the House, but also the ability to expand. So we're working in New York One, for example, a guy named Lee Zeldin is the Republican uh, who's been there for a few cycles. And we have a real pickup opportunity on Long Island uh, with a woman named Nancy Goroff. Um, and handicappers think that Democrats may pick up anywhere between five and 10 congressional districts um, this cycle, in addition to maybe making some gains uh, in the U.S. Senate. So it's uh, it's full speed ahead over this next couple of weeks, next couple of week, rather. I know, right? We just keep saying weeks as if, as if uh, we've had all this time. When we chatted last time, you talked a lot about the way that people were, I would say, getting out the vote because we're kind of like there now. And we we talked a lot about the the influence and the impact of digital on 
getting the vote out about candidacies running. You mentioned, you know, in the work that you're doing, running a lot of commercials um, and the, the whole four screen <clears throat> methodology and approach we talked about in the past. Have you found that in this past year with the pandemic that the strategies have changed for HG and for the work that you've done? And if so, what's been the most significant change? Yeah, it's a great question, Bill. Um, you know, with, with COVID-19 affecting all of us, you know, in the past, we would travel to all these different uh, congressional districts, all these different states to film ads in person with a big television crew, with a big digital um, video crew. Uh, and now what we've had to do is shoot a lot of this uh, virtually. So we'll have a crew on the ground and they're literally holding up an iPhone uh, over Zoom or over FaceTime to direct these ads. Uh, oftentimes we're capturing footage just like we are on this video conver uh, conversation um, that then we'll deploy uh, for these different races. A lot of ads, as you've seen, that are political too, have little uh, tags at the bottom that say shot before COVID-19, shot before uh, social distancing to make sure that people realize that this footage uh, isn't being captured uh, during this pandemic. So, so much of our work has changed in the way that we uh, capture um, moving images in the lead up to this election and deploy them. Um, I think interestingly enough, one of the, the tidbits that we've been able to figure out thus far with early voting in, in the vast majority of states now going on for a few weeks, uh, nearly 58 million Americans have already voted, whether it be in person or uh, return their ballot. I voted in uh, through the mail in Washington, DC, um, is the rise of young people voting, uh, which is a huge uh, statistic. Oftentimes everyone says, is this the year that millennials get engaged or Gen Z folks get engaged? Um, and we're seeing turnout surge uh, among younger voters, uh, age 18 to 29, um, in a lot of these key states. And I think to your point in your question earlier, Bill, about digital advertising, we're seeing that uptick in engagement among those younger folks that aren't maybe reacting to digital ads, but the, they themselves are advertising the fact that they're voting, whether it be on TikTok, whether it be on Instagram, whether it be on Snapchat. Um, and really harnessing the power of their vote in a way that we haven't seen before, uh, which, and we can get into the politics of that in terms of who that's uh, most likely to benefit, but I think that's one of the takeaways that we're seeing among digital engagement, especially with younger voters. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I've, I've definitely seen, I mean, as we talked about before, um, I, I cut the cable a long time ago, so I, I consume media a little bit differently than I used to. And I think it's probably pretty similar. Most people kind of get it through Apple TV or, you know, uh, a device, but not necessarily the cable. And every I'm once ashamed in a while, to admit it as a TV consultant that I've also cut the cord, which is <laughs> kind of disastrous for my line of work. But uh, well, it makes it even more interesting, I imagine, because does, yeah. you're you're making you're making ads that will essentially go out on different channels and different medium um, yeah. And you may not necessarily see it in the in the in the way that you are expected or you're producing it. And it's been interesting because even, you know, my husband and I, every once in a while, we will tune into the CBS app because we, you know, we watch things like 60 Minutes or whatnot. So we've got sure. the app that allows us to watch the live TV. And we forget, like we forget, like, oh, my gosh, it is like back to back political ads out here in Washington State. Right. And um and we hear from some of our family that that at times like this, they just turn off the TV because they can't necessarily stand the saturation of the bombardment of ads. I'm curious, the you know, that's still happening, right? There's still the TV ads, as you mentioned. That's a lot of work that's that's been happening. But you've also mentioned the the millennials and the Gen Zs and 
um, dare I even say, I think they're calling the next generation, generation alpha, um, because we run out of the alphabet and because we, they'll be coming out of a pandemic. So why not restart? They could be the alpha. Yeah. Um, are they tuning in to any of those? Do they not tune into them? I think you, you made a really good point. We're seeing the behavior where they share their voting experience, which to give, it warms my heart, honestly, like to see the, mm-hmm. the post of people, as you mentioned on TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook, you know, Instagram, others posting pictures or, or videos of themselves completing the, the civic duty of voting. But do you get a sense from any of the data that you see that things in the consumption realm are swaying them at all? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, you know, we've had to adapt as an industry in terms of political advertisements uh, to this new reality. Um, and one of the unique things, you know, we talked about the fact that we're both cord cutters. Um, it actually gives more opportunity in the ads that you're seeing now in a way that when you have broadcast television and cable spots, it's a lot of eyeballs and you can somewhat tailor it on cable based on programming, but, uh, very much less so in terms of broadcast, right? So there's 200 some uh, what we call DMAs, uh, which is how broadcast television is bought. So Seattle, New York, Altoona, Pennsylvania. Um, and that's how broadcast ads are, are, uh, are bought. And it's a lot of eyeballs on the screen. It's an overarching message. You're seeing a lot more of Joe Biden's ads on that medium uh, than you are Donald Trump because of this fundraising imbalance that you're seeing, which is another interesting thing that we can talk about too. But back to the, the, the idea of, of millennials and younger folks that are doing that cord cutting, it's actually a benefit for us, not just in terms of there's a lot of ad inventory, we call it connected TV, CTV, or OTT, over-the-top television, because what we can do is match that back to the voter file in a way that you can't do with broadcast or cable. So we can individualize the ad experience. And that's where every sector of, of uh, ads are going, not just in terms of politics and issue-based advertising, but consumer advertising as well, is that more individualized experience. So we know that this is Bill Kirst's um, uh, IP zone match back to the smart television, whether it's uh, Vizio or what have you, uh, uh, television that you have. And we can direct advertisement that we know resonates with you based on what we've modeled you to be, your age, your vote history, the magazines that you subscribe to, all of that commercial data that's out there. It's very Big Brother-esque in that regard, but it's also fascinating from, a, I think, a, a human interest level that, that we can get down to that level of specificity with our ad targeting. We're running a really big campaign right now in California among uh, around kidney dialysis, um, which is uh, an issue that doesn't affect a lot of people, but if it affects you, it's a very serious issue, right? Because dialysis is a very serious procedure that has to be done every week, every two weeks. Um, and we're being massively outspent by the opposition because it's all the medical device companies. Um, but so we have to be much smarter in terms of how we're deploying resources. So it's a very tailored campaign that we're running based on polling, modeling, tracked back to IP zones. Um, track back to specific smart televisions to get that kind of connection uh, in a way that we can't compete on major broadcast buys across California. We're being outspent $100 million to very little money, um, but we can be competitive in that con- connected television, OTT television space because we're using these dollars smarter. So that's you know something that not just these larger campaigns, but also to reach millennials, because again, they're watching Hulu, they're watching there's no advertising on Netflix, unfortunately, but they're watching all of these connected devices. And if we can reach them there, that's going to have a greater persuasion impact. 
The other interesting thing too, and I'm not a mail consultant, but you know, direct mail is still a, a very important means. If you're in one of these targeted congressional districts or battleground states, your uh, your mailbox has just been flooded. I'm sure. I'm in D.C. We have some competitive uh, citywide elections for council. A lot of mail. Interestingly enough, mail resonates more with millennials and G- Gen Z voters because they're not used to getting mail. So, you know, it's like baby boomers who are sick and tired of, uh, you know, opening their mailbox, bills, direct mail, all that kind of stuff. Millennials actually resonate more with direct mail that's compelling because they've never been really experienced, you know, never really experienced it before. So it's kind of interesting how what is old and an old means of communication is what's new with these younger voters that are, are new to it. That is very interesting. I did not think about that, but when I do stop and think about it, it makes sense to me because if you've been used to having everything in a non-tactile experience, um, yeah. a digital experience, and then you get something that is a flyer or you know something that you can touch and see, I, I mean, it's it's a sensation, right? So it just strikes exactly a different right. emotion exactly right. in them. Yeah. Um, I would love to talk a little bit, you'd mentioned about, about raising money and I, I will leave you to the stats in terms of the totals, but mm-hmm. I've, I've been hearing that uh, the candidates uh, have been raising record amounts of money. Um, and there's a couple questions nested in, in this question because I've been thinking about it. Um, one is I did hear uh, former Vice President Biden recently say, I believe at the last debate, um, and I apologize if I get the debates wrong because you, uh, in this in this pandemic world, everything sort of blurs together, right? Everything blurs uh, together for sure. It's hard. Um, but he did make a statement that the average donation that he's been getting is about $43 a donation. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the numbers, you know, 100 in the hundred millions, I, I don't know what was, how much did he pull down in, in September? So over these, la- over these last two months, he's raised, uh, I think about $750 million between October and September, a massive sum. It's about $1.6 billion uh, since he became the nominee. Um, wow. So, I mean, it's just, you know, the, the Biden camp is blowing the doors off of their fundraising. And you compare that to the Trump campaign, which is kind of languishing, actually, mm-hmm. if you look at it, the stories all through the spring before um, uh, the vice president was the official nominee was the massive cash advantage because we know Donald Trump has been running for reelection ever since taking office, right? right. He hasn't taken any time off from the campaign trail to actually govern. Uh, and all those stories were how can Democrats compete against this financial juggernaut? Well, come to find out, they've wasted a lot of their money. Everyone on the Trump payroll has gotten rich, pretty much. You look at Brad Parscale, the former campaign manager, and others buying yachts and cars and, and taking the best example of how Donald Trump has lived his life grifting off other people and applying it now to this moneymaker that was Donald Trump's political campaign. So the fact that you look at the numbers and and, and Joe Biden has about $200 million heading into the final month, this final month of October, uh, and the president's campaign has about $60 million. The Biden campaign is outspending Donald Trump's campaign two to one, three to one, four to one in some of these key battleground states. In fact, of the 10 battleground states, He's outspending, the vice president is outspending the Trump campaign in all but one of them, and that's the state of Georgia. Um, so it's just this massive cast advantage. A lot of it is going to television uh, as a, a pretty persuasive means, especially for senior voters in some of these key states like Florida that we think of, like even Pennsylvania, uh, which actually skews kind of older in terms of the median age. Um, so it, it's amazing to see this 
final cash uh, uh, advantage and a real um, uh, a real uh, uh, means of support behind the vice president's campaign that he was able to build this. I think they adapted really quickly to the dynamics with COVID and, and transitioning to a really virtual engagement program where every single day, every single night, there's more headliners, there's more virtual fundraisers that are actually fun, engaging. I was on one with the cast from the West Wing uh, just last week, uh, and you give them 50 bucks and it's a fun night. And I think they adapted really quickly to this changing dynamic in a way that the Trump campaign didn't. Yeah, which is kind of fascinating because when you and I chatted a year ago, we were talking about how much money the Trump campaign had been raising and really winning with in the digital realm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, do you think the impact of the pandemic has changed some of the way people are raising money, spending money, and actually even just as you described it, you know, there are probably more people at home. There are, I mean, it's not, not probably, there are more people at home. So whereas before, as you described, there would have been much more sort of on the trail, trying to, trying to meet people in all different locations. And maybe there would have been more money put towards truly purely digital, but Mm -hmm. because people are at home now and maybe watching more TV, is it fair? Is it a fair assumption to say that the pivot happened to get more things in front of people's eyes on a on a TV basis as well? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's funny if you think about it. When we last spoke in September, um, you know, the, the Democratic primary is still going on, very much in the mm-hmm. heat of things. Um, uh, we had not had the first votes cast yet in, in the primary. Donald Trump was still not impeached uh, by the House of Representatives, and you look at the way that. Joe Biden was raising money back there. It was all in-person events, all major donor events, right? I was at a, a number of them. You know, at every uh, debate uh, during the Democratic primary, the vice president would go in a day ahead of time, have a fundraiser, spend the next morning after the debate raising money, um, and that's what really f- fueled his campaign were these in-person, high-dollar um, events. Compare that to Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, his competitors in that race. It was all grassroots fundraising. And the vice president has taken a kind of a cue from each of them. The fact that nearly 5.5 million separate individual Americans have donated to Joe Biden's campaign is huge. It's more than Bernie Sanders ever raised from different individuals across uh, this country. And I think you're also seeing um, the Democratic Party unified for the first time really in its history, I think, in modern history. Um, So much because I think of the stakes of this election. But you see how effective different surrogates have been with Elizabeth Warren, with Bernie Sanders, specifically Bernie Sanders is traveling to Pittsburgh, I think today, to rally support for the vice president and really turning over their lists, turning over their supporters, realizing just how important this is to elect Joe Biden. We can't get involved in these party petty party politics anymore, as we saw in 2016 a bit, uh, where you saw 15 percent of uh, Bernie Sanders backers in the primary switch over and vote for President Trump in the general election, you're not seeing that. And you're you're really seeing, again, that the vice president's campaign really engage uh, in a way that is surprising to, to most people in terms of the, this digital grassroots engagement. Um, I think part of that is also fueled by Kamala Harris and the historic nature of her joining the ticket. Uh, they have had their best fundraising uh, every day since her um, uh, joining the ticket. Only two days since Kamala Harris has joined the ticket has Donald Trump's campaign beat Joe Biden's campaign in fundraising two days since that announcement. Um, 
So that uh, I think you're also seeing the, the grassroots engagement around her and the historic nature of um, her candidacy as the first black woman to join a major party ticket and to be in serious contention. Um, uh, so I think that also is playing out as well. Yeah, I would love to to chat a little bit. When we when we connected last year, you had mentioned that you had you had um, done a lot of uh, segments on Fox News. Are you still doing the kind of chatting going on some of the pieces with Fox News? And if so, every day, every day, uh, every day. Okay, yeah, awesome. Yeah. See, again, I'm a, I'm I'm a cord cutter, so I don't watch these things necessarily. <laughs> I should, but I have seen a number of friends have sent me some segments with Mayor Pete. Uh, mm-hmm. on Fox News or Fox Business as well, and uh, and how quickly and easily he refutes a lot of the things that are that are said. I'm curious, uh, how, how hey, is the- He's fu- taking all my, he's taking all my thunder. I was, I was say, he's Pete taking your airtime, right? Before, yeah, before Mayor Pete was on there. No, we- uh, uh, But yeah, it, my question was, have you gotten to work with him at all? And what is that, what is that media playground like these days? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I've known Pete uh, for uh, nearly a decade since he ran for state treasurer in um, Indiana. Many folks uh, forget that his first foray into electoral politics was running for um, state uh, treasurer in uh, in Indiana and was unsuccessful. And then, you know, um, went back to South Bend and, and served for two terms. And um, I think it's I think it's marvelous that he is on Fox. I've encouraged for a long time. Uh, and and I think he, you also saw during the primary, uh, he held I think two or three Fox town halls uh, with Brett Baer or Chris Wallace or uh, among others, and really spoke to uh, viewers of Fox News. And, and I've been an evangelist for Democrats going on Fox News because I think you've got to meet folks where they're at, right? And we know, and we talked about this last time, between six and eight million Americans voted for. Barack Obama once or twice had then voted for Donald Trump, right? Um, they're not ideological people. They're frustrated with their lot in life. They're frustrated with the inability to see their wages increase. They're now even more frustrated with COVID and, and um, the limits it's, it's, it's placed on them. And they saw the first African-American president outside of the traditional Washington environment as you know, someone who would stick up for them, stand for them. And they saw Donald Trump, right? The first president ever to, I think since Dwight Eisenhower, not to have electoral uh, experience as an outsider, be the champion for their cause as well. And of course, he's let them down. We can talk about that too. Um, but again, these folks are not, not ideological. Many of them are watching Fox News. Fox beats every other uh, cable news network um, pretty handedly in terms of ratings. So there's a lot of eyeballs on Fox. And I think we need to bring our arguments there and should not be afraid to uh, to take our point of view uh, to Fox. And I have a great relationship with a number of, of Fox anchors, um, you know, a woman named Dana Perino, who hosts the two o'clock show on Fox News Channel, former uh, George W. Bush uh, White House press secretary. She really uh, holds really compelling panels with usually me and a, and a Republican just analyzing what we're seeing on the ground. Um, incredibly thoughtful interviews. A woman named Shannon Bream, who hosts Fox News at night at 11 o'clock uh, every night. Uh, really compelling conversations that we're having on, on the Supreme Court. She's a former Supreme Court um, uh, uh, correspondent for Fox, um, a lawyer herself. Um, and, and we have these great kind of in-depth conversations that aren't 
you know, truly partisan. Now, there's a number of hosts that have quite a reputation on Fox News, right? So I'm not going on Tucker or Laura and things like that or Sean. Um, but again, I think we need to bring our arguments there and not be afraid to engage folks. And, um, you know, if we can win some of these folks back to the Democratic column, again, you're seeing inroads made among white working class folks with Joe Biden uh, as part of these exit pollings and, and things like that. Some of these folks are coming back home to the Democratic Party had been longtime Democrats, maybe voted for Ronald Reagan, maybe voted for Donald Trump in the past, but are coming home to Joe Biden because of his roots, because of his character, because of his story, and also because of a referendum on Donald Trump. Um, again, I think we need to meet those voters where they're at and, and not be afraid to engage uh, on Fox to, to reach them. Yeah, and I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see um, the watching patterns that continue to happen after this election, because... Right. I think there's even a show out there called The Circus or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Sure. Talks yeah, on about, Showtime. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it has been a, a quite a quite a media circus. I, I'm curious if you saw the 60 Minutes interview last night. I did. I would love your thoughts. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, it was it was everything that we expected. Um, I think the, the amazing thing to me, um, I'm always surprised with just how um, you know, Mike Pence is just such an interesting character, I think. You know, he directly followed the president after he kind of stormed out and ended the conversation early. And um, there's no daylight between Mike Pence and, and Donald Trump. People will study just the way that he has so um, manipulated himself to be uh, Donald Trump's uh, biggest booster and abandon all kind of principles as an evangelical Christian. You know, he was Catholic and can I think converted to some kind of evangelical church, he and his wife. Um, so that was fascinating to me just to see the the intellectual hoops that he has to go through. Again, now seeing that, you know, uh, COVID is ravaging his staff right now, his chief of staff, his body man, the guy closest to him that travels with him wherever he goes. And you're seeing Senate Democrats say, please do not come to the Senate tonight to preside over uh, Judge Barrett's uh, nomination fight on the floor because you've been so exposed to COVID-19 among your staff and you are the de facto leader, supposedly, of the coronavirus task force. So I thought that was interesting. I thought, you know, Donald Trump is out there always campaigning. I can stand up to President Xi of China. I can stand up to President Putin and he can't stand up to 78-year-old Leslie Stahl. <laughs> you know, he's always amazing to me, this tough guy. He's got Macho Man playing at all of his rallies now because he survived COVID-19 and uh, thinks he's the the alpha male talking about generation alpha now. I thought that the, the uh, conversation with Nora O'Donnell and the vice president and uh, Senator uh, Harris was great. I mean, they always just pivot back to healthcare. That I think is going to be as we've seen in all these ex- exit pollings, as we saw in 2018, four in ten voters said healthcare was their number one issue long before COVID-19. Right. So their answers on uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And again, if you if you watch just the first 20 minutes of the second presidential, second and final presidential debate, as most Americans do, they don't watch for the full uh, hour and a half. Uh, it was all about COVID-19. And I think that is what is going to decide this election more than anything. Uh, and, you know, Senator Harris and the vice president were really, really strong on those points. And, you know, you contrast that with what you saw in, in Donald Trump's interview and Mike Pence's interview. Uh, and I think, you know, it was a, a no brainer for not changing anything of the dynamic that we're seeing in terms of this this election. Biden and Harris, their number one goal is to do no harm uh, in these next eight days. And I think that 
um, uh, that 60 Minutes interview not only did not do any harm, but maybe brought some suburban women over their side, independent voters over their side that really saw the petulance of Donald Trump on full display. Yeah, I would I would be curious as someone who you've obviously been on set and you've done you've done, you know, interviews on set. I've You're never stormed to... off a set. Okay, that was one question <laughs> I had for you <laughs> to date. There's always you can always hope for that, right? Um, you have to set goals. But the the other question I have for you is how drastically different does it feel for you now and others, your other peers, right? I imagine you're doing a lot of your stuff virtually. Are you doing it from your home there? Are you joining, you know, joining in from Fox from yeah. home? Are you going to a place that's like marked as a, you know, DMZ safe? Like, how does that work for, for people that are analysts, contributors uh, in this world? You know, I'm a big fan of PBS NewsHour um, uh-huh. with Judy Woodruff. And I loved. I how think she's doing it from her living room, right? Yes, that's part, exactly right? what yeah. I was going to say. Is she's doing it from her living room for the most part. Omni Navaz does it from you know her place, and um, and and it's become almost this thing that in the beginning of COVID seems so stark, right? Like I'm looking at people's living rooms, or I can see their cat in the background. How does it feel for you all? Because those of us that are watching, I think we're all we're all kind of judges about it. But I've always been curious what it feels like for the analysts and the contributors. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a fun, uh, kind of the unique things to come out of this is, is seeing how everybody's living, right? And, and how they organize their homes and in a way that we uh, would, would not have known before. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. So um, when the pandemic was, was coming this way in terms of last spring and stuff like that, Fox closed down uh, the Bureau for the most part in New York and in Washington, DC. And what they did, uh, I think that was really cool is there's two companies, one in Wisconsin, one in North Carolina that outfit these sprinter vans, right? You kind of see these extended vans uh, that have uh, a lot of space in the back and they've taken out all the chairs and they've soundproofed them and they've made them into mobile studios where you have a TV screen behind you, you have a chair and you have a 4K camera in front of you with a live feed. So what uh, nearly 60% or so of my TV appearances, a van will pull up next to my house. I will go downstairs and just get in the back of a van and you wouldn't know the difference in terms of the background because it's studio quality. It's a 4K camera. You you have the same kind of setup with an earpiece directly into the camera. Uh, and they have the technology now that's a live feed back from that van to the control room. And um, the vast majority of interviews uh, take place that way. About 25% of uh, interviews are still in studio, uh, but not with the host. So um, before the pandemic, uh, they have at Fox and other um, uh, stations, networks, they have little boxes that you sit in with a camera, with a prompter sometimes, with a screen behind you. And you're just in this really small soundproof box and that's how you do your interview. And that's when you watch people on TV and they're in these boxes, right? With a background behind them, whether it be the city that they're in or some view of the newsroom. That's generally how uh, that is shot across all networks. Uh, A lot of times before the pandemic, obviously I would be in studio with a Republican, usually debating them with a host. That all has changed. Uh, there's no direct contact with any of the hosts for any of the contributors, any of the, the panelists. Um, but again, one of the I think one of the neat things to come out of this pandemic are these mobile trucks that show up. And there's a whole fleet of them. And, and 
uh, funny enough, you know, a lot of different networks use them. And this was now months ago, but one of the trucks, uh, this guy had the idea to put up a, a sheet of paper with his, the logo of his company. And he had every uh, guest sign it. Uh, so you had senators, you had all kinds of folks and health uh, professionals, but uh, there was Tony Fauci who signed it. And then I managed to get the spot right next to Tony Fauci. So that's as close as I've gotten to Tony Fauci signing the back of this printer van. Uh, but that's, uh, I think, one of the unique things to come out of this pandemic. We'll see if it continues, right? Because it's certainly a nice benefit for folks like me that can just go downstairs, knock out a 15-minute interview and go back to bed or go back to the gym or what have you. Um, so that's one of the unique ways that that people are dealing with COVID-19 and the limitations in terms of on-air personalities. It also would make for a great plot line in a novel that I'm just going to put a pin in. Because imagine, you know, you get the call, hey, the van's outside, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're some famous journalist or, or analyst, you get in the van, it turns out not to be the van you think it is, and off they go with you. And there you go. Got, and now well, you've got a now, ransom. <laughs> as, as the Democrat that goes on Fox News, one of them, now you've got me a little fearful. About I mean, you should be careful about what now vans you get into on the street, Kevin. <laughs> I'm true. just saying. <laughs> It's true. Don't talk to strangers. I forget that sometimes. Uh, but it is a pretty fascinating model. I never really thought of it, but um, it makes a lot of sense. And, it, and it'll be interesting if that is sustainable for the future, because again, mm -hmm. it's um, you know it's kind of a unique kind of platform, and and it's it's very accessible um, and inexpensive. I imagine it's is probably it's not inexpensive. As expensive I don't know the cost associated. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know about the cost associated with it, but but you're also seeing you know Fox. Um, uh, is about to spend a, a good amount of money revamping their studios uh, mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. Uh, MSNBC and NBC have already done the same thing in Washington, D.C., where NBC is taking over. It's so funny. All these different um, uh, cable news networks are, are mostly in the same building. NBC, MSNBC, Telemundo, Fox, C-SPAN all occupy the same amount of real, real estate in the same building, not far from the Capitol. Oftentimes, when you see the views on MSNBC, on Fox, it's the actual capital. It's not a projection. And NBC has bought out the first floor of that building in a, and are in the process of turning it into something that looks like 30 Rock in New York with first floor studios that make it more accessible. I think that is an indication of where that news is headed. You see Nora O'Donnell as well on CBS moving the bureau for her evening news program to Washington, D.C., and I think that's a product of what you're seeing with it being the Trump show. Now, we'll see it's, if it's sustainable after January, if he's unsuccessful. But so much of the news is so focused and ratings and interest is around Trump, right? And to the extent that these networks uh, can cover him, the fact that they're moving all these resources to Washington and away from New York, I think is an interesting indicator of where news is headed. I agree 100%. Also talking about where news is headed, I would love to pivot to technology a little bit. Um, there's a political article that that uh, posted today um, that I'll read from. Um, it talks about sort of what's on the calendar of tech CEOs this week. Um, mm -hmm. And it says election day is a week away, but first tech CEOs testify. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, and Google's Sundar Pichai are set to testify before the Senate Commerce Committee this Wednesday on section 230, internet companies legal liability shield that lawmakers on both sides of the aisle say should be scaled back or done away with completely. 
I would love for you to talk a little bit about what is ahead this week in this testimony from your standpoint and why it's significant and why people should be paying attention to it. It's a good question, Bill. You know, similar to what we saw with the Judiciary Committee hearings uh, around uh, Judge Barrett uh, two weeks ago, um, I don't think we're going to learn much of anything uh, from these hearings. It's going to be a platform for Republicans to air their grievances, just like Democrats did around the ACA and healthcare uh, with Judge Barrett. And similarly, you're going to see Democrats airing grievances too, because we're seeing the rise of QAnon and other uh, conspiracy hate groups that are really fueling themselves on social media, their ability to connect with one another. Now, Facebook has done some work in terms of limiting, uh, especially around QAnon, how they're uh, able to connect on that platform. But again, I think it's going to be uh, a, a you know a hearing, not really looking at getting any answers from these three CEOs, but the ability to score some political points for both Republicans and Democrats over this issue of whether these kind of companies, these kind of platforms are uh, immune to prosecution based on what people say on those platforms. Um, you know, so you see the Ted Cruz's and Lindsey Graham's out there on the Judiciary Committee uh, wanting to call uh, these folks before their committee. Interestingly enough, the fact that it's before the Commerce Committee and not Judiciary Committee, I think is somewhat telling. Commerce Committee has a reputation for actually doing work, you know, in terms of actually allowing people to testify, providing answers, not a show showman committee, but actually a workman committee, workwoman committee. Um, so we'll see now, does this have any effect whatsoever on the election? No. Um, you know, uh, and, I, and again, I think, you know, it's, it's a not necessarily a win-win for Republicans to have them before this committee, as opposed to the Democrats. It's just a It'll be it'll be interesting to see how they allow them to actually talk and give testimony. Yeah, I think the last time there was testimony done, um, it was kind of farcical. I mean, it there was. was. I mean, it, it was <laughs> eye opening to see just how little these elected representatives understood of what these right. platforms do and how they operate and things like that. And you saw their millennial staffers behind them being like. You know what? Are, you know you're not even their, using their hands the right in, language. Their, their hands on their yeah. face like this. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's part of the problem too. Is we are these folks are so out of date in terms of their ability to to actually provide real oversight on these committees, um, just because of just the ages involved. I mean, you just see that you know this this Congress is just run by seventy and eighty year olds um, uh, that are totally inept when it comes to uh, policing these kinds of platforms. Most of these uh, older members, too, don't have email, right? right. Uh, we know many of them on both the Senate and House side. You know, I know many staffers that tell me that they have to print out emails for their right. boss to physically write responses on them to then be typed out to send back to people. Right. Uh, it, it's just extraordinary to me to, to, to see the difference. And again, you look at the presidential election, too. The fact that the man elected in 1992 as president, elected in 2000 as president, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, are both younger than yes. the two people currently running for president, let alone Bill Clinton, let alone Barack Obama, who's younger than all of them. But the fact that the man elected in 1992 is younger than the two men competing for the presidency in 2020, I think is pretty a pretty amazing statistic. It's very telling. And in a matter of what, you know, five to ten years, there's going to be a very different demographic in that in the House of Representatives. Um, very true. 
But and, but Joe Biden does happen have an Apple Watch and an iPhone that he uses all the time. And he wears so the aviators. Get, and he wears the aviators, so I got to get a plug in I, for for him and technology. Yeah, and uh, Senator Harris wears the Converse. So yes, uh, she does absolutely. Uh, well, I'm just curious from the standpoint of when you think about tech going forward, and you think about what you just said about the media moguls making shifts and and even as you said you know bringing stations down to the ground floor so it's more Mm -hmm. of a spectator sport exactly do you see that continuing if there is a change as you kind of alluded to if if the current president who's running does not get reelected uh isn't it possible he'll just take that media hunger that that and just start his own thing i mean that's that's absolutely i mean he's already possible yeah, he's already hinted at that. And you saw in 2016 when all of uh, the president's team thought he was not going to be successful on election night, already shopping around the idea of Trump TV or some kind of media mm-hmm. engagement. One of the interesting things to come out of his tax returns, aside from the fact that he only paid $750 two years in a row as president and paid more in Chinese taxes than American taxes, is the fact that the only time that he was in the black in terms of making money was when he was on The Apprentice. Right yes. as the host, and he made about four hundred or so million dollars from I think it was fifteen seasons on The Apprentice. So media television, for the most part, is the only avenue by which the Trump family can make actual money. Right, they're over leveraged, they're massively in debt. We don't know to whom, uh, but you know they have for a long time been in all of these real estate deals and things like that. And you see Jared Kushner and others realize that media is the only way forward, I think, to tackle some of that debt going forward, right? The cult of personality around Donald Trump, if that becomes Trump television, if it folds into some of the already uh, right-wing programming uh, in the ecosphere, uh, whether it be Newsmax, uh, owned by Chris Reddy, who's a close ally of President Trump, whether it be OAN, One American News Network, um, or whether it's something else that they take on, uh, and do themselves. You're seeing, you know, they they launched a Trump uh, campaign app. Trump TV is already part of that uh, app, where you have Laura Trump, the president's daughter-in-law, Eric Trump, the president's son, doing these interviews. Don Jr. having a podcast. Clearly, this is where the Trump family is headed. Whether or not they're successful in uh, in just eight days, uh, that is definitely something that I think you'll see because the interest is there. And again, if he can hold on to which he is, his base of support, which is about 38, 39, 40 percent, that's a huge number of consumers, media consumers um, in this country. Um, and they will go where the president goes. I mean, this is a loyal viewing audience. They eat up all of this kind of content. And I think they would, the Trump family realizes that. And I'm sure that's where they're headed if they're unsuccessful uh, this year. What happens to the you know, just to, just to clarify for folks, the, all the money that's raised, mm-hmm. if it's not all spent, what happens to it? Do do does the Trump campaign then get to say, okay, we we take this money that's in a pack or whatever? I, you know, you you keep me honest. You're more fluent in this than than I than I am. But do you get to take that money and reallocate it towards something like a a future media endeavor, or do you have to separate so- that out? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and there's different rules in terms of how different pots of money are, are managed and, and how they're reported to the FAC, the Federal Elections Commission. Direct campaign hard money, uh, which is you write a check to the Donald J. Trump Victory Fund, 
Biden-Harris Victory Fund. There's a lot of regulations in terms of how that money, if it's not spent on political communications, political campaign activities, how it can be spent. Oftentimes, the only ability is for you to donate it to charity, actually, a registered federal charity. Um, you can donate it to other federal campaign accounts, right? So folks running for the Senate, the House. You've seen the Biden-Harris campaign donating some of their federal resources to down-ballot races where they can in order to boost um, uh, folks running for office. I think Joe Biden, as a creature of the U.S. Senate for 40 years, knows how important a Democratic Senate is, not just a Democratic House, and wants to bring all of those folks up, which is not something you're seeing with Donald Trump's campaign, where it's focused singularly on him and his prospects in November. So, yeah, but the Trump campaign can't take that money and go buy up TV stations, build out studios, things like that. They can give it to other political campaigns. They can give it to charities, things like that, but they can't uh, spend it on anything personal like that. Interestingly enough, Mark Meadows, who's a former member of the House of Representatives from North Carolina, he's now the White House Chief of Staff, is actually in some serious legal trouble uh, with the FEC right now because after he left his seat in Congress, he's continued to spend out of his campaign account, not running for re-election, not running for any office, but as the White House Chief of Staff. So he's buying plane tickets with it. He's buying uh, different goods and services uh, with it. And I think it's gonna run into some serious problems with the FEC because if they're not directly campaign related and he's not running for any office as White House Chief of Staff, that should be a serious point of concern for the FEC and serious legal implications for him down the road. Yeah, and and is there anything stopping, like let's say for example, the president makes a donation to another campaign and that mm -hmm. person, can that person later on, if they don't succeed, can they take that money and give it back to a private citizen? So can it, can it come back to the president? I'm asking this question because he's, he's shown us all sorts of pathways of, yeah. of how, uh, how he uh, avoids a, certain things and then gets, yeah. you know, gets money routed back to him. So is that possible? So it, it actually kind of came up in Florida. Actually, mm -hmm. there's a woman named Pan, Pam Bondi, someone who I debate all the time on Fox. Uh, she's the former attorney general of the state of Florida uh, and took a massive uh, increase in donations from the Trump uh, family and from the Trump campaign. Uh, to her uh, uh, her reelection campaign as as Florida's attorney general, uh, I think in 2016 or maybe 2018, she's no longer in office and was part of the president's uh, in, um, impeachment uh, council committee. Um, and there were a lot of red flags raised with that because it's kind of like you're you're kind of peddling influence in, in this way. Interestingly enough, uh, you've seen the head of the FEC, a, a woman whose name escapes me right now, but she's been much more aggressive, especially on Twitter countering some of the campaign finance violations that are out there um, because she's had to take such an active role mm -hmm. based on what she's seeing with the Trump campaign. Um, she called the task Mike Huckabee just today over Twitter, who posted something about, I just voted. Now I'm going to uh, vote uh, by mail just to prove that I can do it. And she said, that's a felony. And under uh, Alabama or under Arkansas law, you can be sent to jail for that and cited the code of that. So I think rest assured, at least some of these institutions are certainly paying attention because we know there's still investigations into the inaugural fund, right? And the tens and uh, tens of millions of dollars misappropriated that were given to Trump's inaugural fund in 2016, the breakup of Melania, Trump's best friend, who 
coordinated some of that in the tell-all book that she she wrote. Um, I, I think that is also still playing out. And I think to your point, you know, it's there's nothing out of consideration for just how corrupt this family and this uh, this campaign and this administration uh, will be, certainly. Yeah, one last uh, question I would love to ask you about a candidate <clears throat> who I've been keeping an eye on for a long time, admire tremendously, and, and honestly would love to see him maybe run for president, Mark Kelly in Arizona. Sure. Um, there's something about... Uh, something about the thought of someone who's been to space and looked back mm-hmm. on this earth and come yeah. back has a different appreciation for uh, solving problems, I guess. So I would love to hear from you. I've read a lot about how Mark Kelly is doing really well in Arizona. There's a lot of excitement around it. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on, on how he's doing and how significant that seat is and possibly if anybody's talked about it, his future uh, political aspirations? Yeah, it's a great question, Bill. Um, you know, Mark is certainly one of the the best um, uh, pickup opportunities that we have in a state like Arizona, and the implications are actually uh, um, uh, interesting enough moving up the ballot as opposed to down the ballot. So, Mark right now is out polling Joe Biden in terms of the horse race with Donald Trump and Joe Biden at the top of the ticket, and Mark Kelly and Martha McSally, the incumbent Republican who was appointed to that seat, she was not duly elected to that seat. As we remember, it's John McCain's seat. Um, yeah, the fact that Mark Kelly's out polling uh, the top of the ticket is a really strong indication of just how strong a candidate he is as a former astronaut, as a former Navy captain, uh, as a former Navy uh, avi- uh, naval aviator. Um, and the fact that he's raising so much money and he's not a na- native Arizonan, right? So he's taking the best of his predecessor, hopefully, and John McCain, right? John McCain married uh, Cindy Hensley. Uh, who came from a prominent Arizona family uh, and was not a native uh, Arizona either. And there's a similar story in that, you know, when uh, John McCain was running for office in the 80s for the House first, one of the big knocks on him was that he was not a native Arizonan. And he had the great response saying, well, you know, I've lived all over the country, lived all over the world. And, and really, the, the, the longest time I ever lived anywhere was in Hanoi when I was a prisoner of war for five and a half years. And that shut up everyone that was questioning him and his credentials. Mark Kelly has the same argument that, uh, you know, he's lived all the world, all over the world as an 06 was deployed um, across uh, the world on um, aircraft carriers, what have you, and really put down roots because he married uh, Gabby Giffords, who was, of course, congresswoman from the first district in Arizona, who was tragically shot. Um, uh, that we know her story so well. And they have become a really compelling uh, twosome that, uh, campaigning for this office together. And Gabby really lending her voice to the extent that she can in support of her husband. I think Mark Kelly, and to your point, it's an interesting one. When you've looked back at the world from space, how different your, your views of it are. You know, the last uh, senator who had been in space is a guy named Bill Nelson from Florida, who lost his reelection just two years, four years ago, rather. Um, and uh, or uh, two years ago in Florida uh, against Rick Scott. And I think it does offer people a unique perspective in terms of just how small we are and how interconnected we are. And I think he'll, he'll be an excellent senator from Arizona, truly independent, which Arizona has a really interesting way of sending really compelling characters, uh, going back to Barry Goldwater and the Udalls, among others, um, uh, to Congress. Uh, including John McCain. And I think he'll be the best of Arizona in that seat. 
compared to Martha McSally, who's just kind of a partisan uh, weenie these these days. Right. Yeah, I appreciate it. So um, my goal is is to push out this episode pretty quickly because we don't have much time before people can listen to it. Um, sure. But in the event people do, and obviously most most votes are cast, as you said, like it's record turnout. 58.8 million, I think. More than this point uh, in terms of early, we've eclipsed all early voting statistics from 2016. Which is great. If there was one piece of advice that you were to give to someone who's kind of still on the fence, right? Let's, let's, yeah. let's talk to those people for a few minutes. What would you say to them? Uh, that uh, this country needs to return to some sense of normalcy some sense of, of, of leadership on, on the world stage. And it's not a Republican or Democratic issue. Uh, it's an American issue. It's a patriotic issue. You know, you know, Joe Biden's out there campaigning and, you know, masks, for example, have become so, par, you know, partisized uh, in terms of, you know, what, you know, whether folks wear them or not. And what he has said is it's our patriotic duty because it's not about protecting me. It's pr- about protecting you. And that we've lost that sense of, uh, of American greatness as part of this. The fact that we're leading the world now in, the, in not just COVID infections, but in COVID deaths is a real smear against the history of this country that has endured so much, right? We think of previous generations that have endured so much more than we have. When asked just to stay on the couch and watch Netflix, we couldn't do it as American people. You go back generations and you see what they've all endured and, and what they've sacrificed for to continue this American experiment uh, going forward. So I think, you know, my argument to them is if we want to continue this American experiment, if we want to be the leader of the free world uh, going forward, uh, that we've got to return to some kind of a sense of leadership. And, and, uh, and Joe Biden is the best one to do that over these next four years, I think. And if you don't vote, then you don't get a chance to complain. Uh, yeah. going forward too. So that's yeah. fun, fundamentally, then, then, then I don't want to hear from you for four years if you don't exercise that right to vote. That's kind of where I sit in that, in that too. I, I, I'm really hopeful that we see record turnout in, our, in, 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 in your lifetime and my lifetime uh, in this election. Um, I also read recently that someone described you know, the former vice president as someone who would be empath and chief, um, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate that, that aspect of, I do think this country, the world, the condition we're in needs a lot more empathy right now. And I think it if does. we start in that place, we could probably solve any of the challenges that are, that are put our way. So um, I, I read that recently yeah, and, you, and thought that was pretty good. And you know, better than most having grown up overseas, right. And yeah. how, you know, that the, our country was viewed in the 80s and 90s living overseas as 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 Ronald Reagan described it as the shining city on the hill. Mm-hmm. Right. As you know, you look at, at, at Poland at the end of this, uh, the Cold War. Right. They, they were chanting uh, for America, America freedoms, American ideals. You saw the protests in Hong Kong not long ago. They were waving American flags, even with Donald Trump as president. So America mm-hmm. still resonates with the world in terms of what our promise is, right? We've, ne- as Joe Biden says, we've never achieved that promise for everyone in this country just yet. But you have a unique perspective more than uh, many people having viewed the country that we mm-hmm. both love um, from the outside, right? In terms of how right. it was viewed growing up. And we need to return to that sense of purpose and uniqueness on the world stage again. And, and I think Joe Biden is the best person to do that. Yeah, and I think even when he cites the vision 
you know, that vision is in the American experience hasn't been achieved, but to his point, we've never given up on working towards that vision. I think and we've some, never backtracked and we've never backtracked like we right. have. Yeah. I think, I think the importance of a vision is it is always almost unachievable, but it is also what gives you the, the, the heartbeat to keep going. Um, as exactly the former right. vice president said in, in the, in his most recent interview, I believe on 60 minutes. So, well, Kevin, thank you for breaking it down for us. Uh, I mean, I'm this personally kind of holding my thank breath. You. I'm holding my breath this week. It's going to be, I have to remind myself a couple of times to breathe. So I imagine you'll be very, <laughs> very busy this week. Um, and uh, I'll see if I can find a way to see some of your interviews. I, I mean, can I, can just, I, just can I see them the online? Clips. Yeah, yeah I'll send them the clips. Go to Okay, you, perfect. Just search for Kevin Walling on YouTube and you can perfect. find all of them. Perfect. Um, thanks again for all you do. And I imagine we'll probably be connecting offline, meaning not recording next week, even if we know what's going to happen. Um, but do you think we'll know the night of? So I think we, I think we will know, uh, if, uh, Florida is called early, uh, okay. Pennsylvania is called early. Those two States are must wins for Donald Trump. Interestingly enough, Florida, as you know, has had early voting for more than a week now Yeah, by Florida law. Those ballots are being counted right now on mm -hmm. the clerk level that obviously the results aren't being released. We're seeing the numbers of people turning out. We're not seeing, obviously, who they're voting for. Mm -hmm. So once uh, the polls close in Florida, they flip a switch and all of those votes are tabulated that they've been tabulating for the last week and a half. Okay. So, um, so Florida, if it's called early for Joe Biden, uh, then it's going to be a very early night for this country. Uh, because again, that's a must win. Now, again, if Texas is called for Joe Biden, it will be a very, very early, <laughs> very night, early night, uh, yeah. night for Joe Biden. Uh, but again, all of these states are must win states, mostly for Donald Trump. And like I said, if a Florida is called, if a North Carolina is called, if a Pennsylvania is called very, fairly early on, I think it's going to be an early night for uh, this country. Knock on wood. Yes, knock on wood. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate your time, uh, as always, and enjoy the week. It's going to be a roller coaster. You too. Thanks, Bill.